And welcome to Back Chat now with uh, Mike Rouse and me, Jim Gould. And uh, in this morning's uh, Back Chat, we will be talking about the decision to postpone the chief uh, executive uh, election in the light of the need to tackle the COVID wave. Um, just before we uh, turn to that subject, uh, a few emails left over from um, COVID update before the news. Um, some of them are questions which I will keep until tomorrow when we have uh, uh, experts back to put those questions to. But uh, um, just a, a couple of comments um, which I'll read first. So uh, this one from Nick says, I really don't understand how zero COVID can ever be achieved as the virus will continue to spread in the community no matter what is done. Testing will find hundreds of thousands with minor or no symptoms. Isn't it like trying to stop the common cold? It will be impossible to isolate everyone to stop the virus. However, let's say COVID, sorry, zero COVID was achieved. What would your guests suggest uh, should happen after that to allow Hong Kong to open up? And uh, and Simon says uh, there are 10,000 uh, infected uh, people still waiting to be admitted to hospitals, and thousands more are expected to join the list every day. Um, I think the number, I think the number is quite a lot more than uh, 10,000 now, um, actually. Um, Anyway, so what practical socially and economic uh, outcome will mass testing be expected to achieve? Let's say we find another 100,000 people who are infected. What do we plan to do with them? Uh, we do not uh, even have uh, close to the capacity or manpower needed to house, treat and feed all of them in isolation facilities. And it would uh, be crazy to try and almost dystopian. A wealth of experience and evidence from around the world shows that we are a long way past the point where we might have beaten Omicron. We need a change in strategy. We must treat this as we treat uh, other coronaviruses and focus on protecting the vulnerable while letting the bulk of the population live its life. Um, yes, thank you. good point. Oh. And not just the 100,000 either. The 200,000 close contacts. Uh, that's right. That is that is right. Uh, OK. Um, we're now joined uh, on the line by uh, John Burns, Emeritus Professor and uh, Honorary Professor at the Department of Politics and Public Administration at the University of, of Hong Kong. Uh, Professor Burns, good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks for joining us uh, on the programme. Um, so, yeah, so we're talking about the decision uh, to delay the chief executive election. I guess it was uh, inevitable, given uh, uh, what's, ha what's happened uh, last week, and, and certainly it was very well flagged uh, beforehand, wasn't it? Yes, I think it was inevitable. Um, and we have to remember that it came right uh, immediately after... Xi Jinping gave specific instructions to the government to bring, bring the, pang, the pandemic under control. I think he was signaling the central government's disappointment with the way this has been handled in Hong Kong and urging Hong Kong to take it seriously. Right. Uh, good morning, John. Yes, Mike Rouse. Who, who made the decision, do you think? The North or the South? Well, I think it's probably a combination of both. But given that it came immediately after Xi Jinping um, and we're in the middle of this, uh, this pandemic, I think, you know, the, the, Hong Kong, the Hong Kong government had to do this to demonstrate that it is taking fighting the COVID seriously. So right. there was huge pressure to do it, uh, you know, 
vocally, but I think the central government welcomed this. And if it hadn't have come from from here, the central government would have insisted on it. We heard Tammy Jung and people like that already recommending this before the postponement was announced. Right. So um, he doesn't do these kind of things without um, at least some knowledge of what's going on in Beijing. Of course, there was a lot of talk in the media about maybe postpone it for six months or a year, extend Carrie Lam, let her uh, pr deal with the virus first and then uh, see where we've got to. But it was only been postponed until May. Yes, I think to me this indicates that Carrie Lam's time with us may be drawing to an end. Um, and the reason for that is that... Uh, this disappointment with uh, the way the uh, virus has been dealt with so far, um, I too thought it might have been, um, a, the postponement might have been longer. Um, it could have been longer, and the legal and constitutional issues are very easily dealt with by the NPC standing committee. Right. Sorry. So, so it would be what a resolution from the standing committee to extend uh, to to put back the election. Yes, I think so. Right. And uh, to um, you know decide whether the next CE term would be shorter, for example, because as some have pointed out, right now the five-year terms end conveniently at 2047. Yes, yes. Um, oh, uh, interesting. You mentioned the the, the constitutional questions because um, um, it would be unprecedented to extend the term of the chief executive, wouldn't it? And, and um, uh, yes, but but the, this pandemic is unprecedented too. Yeah. Mm. And and so we are in a situation that we have not seen before. And the central government has demonstrated flexibility on these issues time and time again. So I don't think they would allow the basic law or specific uh, uh, requirements there to stand in the way of doing what they perceive to be the right thing. Right. Your, your feeling is that uh, Mrs. Lamb's time is coming to a close. Who do you think they'll be looking for to uh, take over on the 1st of July? Well, there are, you know, some names. But, and these names include Paul Chan and John Lee. Um, these are possibilities. The financial secretary um, and the chief secretary. Just for the benefit, uh, yes, just for yes, the benefit, Lee, just for the benefit of our listeners who may not may not be aware. Yeah. yeah. And Paul Chan, the uh, secretary for finance. So, so, um, but but actually, by postponing the election, this gives the central government. Uh, an opportunity to observe them more closely in this pandemic, because all of this, all of this, is um, communicating to everyone, including the principals and stakeholders like us, that loyalty, while it's very important and maybe the number one selection criteria, competence also matters. And your ability to mobilize and to unify um, the community to get behind this, to get people vaccinated and all of this is very important. Now, 
um, is John Lee, the, the sec chief secretary, or Paul Chan, the secretary for finance, are these people up to the task? I think the central government now has more opportunity to look at other candidates and consider uh, the CY loan is also there too. I mean, sh and shouldn't be discounted. So, so I think there are a number of other people and. Unifying the community is extremely important here. CY proved to be divisive. Um, also, the, you know, the postponement, if, it, if the, the government effectively uh, fights this um, pandemic with the help of the, the central government, this has benefits for the central government because it could rebuild trust and legitimacy in the, gover in the central government, which um has been low and you know i mean it, it rebuild trust and legitimacy with the local government too if they're able to do this successfully so there are these benefits there are also risks of course right. so uh, one of the things that stands out to me is that uh director chia is down in shenzhen convening meetings uh for dealing with the virus the pandemic and Director Luo in the in the office here, the central government liaison office here, is also taking a much higher profile in in addressing uh, the virus. What what do you read into that? I think these are very significant. I mean, she has spoken, and these, you know, it isn't just Shabalong and uh, and Lo Hui Ning who are involved in this. I was reading the other day that one of the very very high profile successful fighters of the virus in Wuhan, who's in the central government, is in Shenzhen, too. Right. And so all of these uh, people being right across the board, I don't know why they're not here. Maybe they maybe they are fearful of, of being infected themselves. So, so all of these people, yes, taking this indicates the the absolute determination of the central government and the Chinese Communist Party to stamp out the virus and achieve what the central government wishes in Hong Kong. Right, and and the high profile of it, and the way that President Xi's statement came out was not the traditional way of, of uh, CCTV and other things first. It was right on the front page of the two uh, newspapers mm. Here in Hong Kong. Sao Kong Pao and Wen Wei Pao. Yeah, yeah Sao Kong Pao and Wen Wei Pao, yes. But that, um, that yeah, I agree with you, was very significant. And I think this was an effort by the central government not to poison opinion on the mainland right. into attacking Hong Kong. I agree. That's exactly what it was. It was in-your-face instructions to the central government, I mean to the local government here, without, um, you know, bringing in the rest of the country, even though we need the help from Guangdong and Shenzhen to do this. Actually, this is the second time that we have needed this help. And it appears that the first time we needed this help, we didn't learn anything from that because we had time to build hospital capacity, we had time to um, enforce more, perhaps coercive vaccination mandates that would have 
boosted the vaccination rates, and we might not be in the serious position that we're in now. Right. The point you made just now, maybe some of the mainland officials are nervous of coming to Hong Kong because of the possibility of getting the virus. That's sort of reinforced, isn't it, by these rewards being offered by some of the local authorities for identifying Hong Kong people smuggled into the mainland. And by Shen Jun putting up extra barbed wire at the border. I mean, this is, this, is, this is exactly the opposite of the way we in Hong Kong traditionally look at this. And yes, this is the, this is the situation that we're now in. So um, I think Hong Kong should be grateful for this help. But, and I, I certainly hope it will be successful at, um, at managing COVID at a level that the public health system, we have a very fragile public health system. We have public finance, which is also fragile. You know, it's based on land and it's not based on mandatory um, health uh, contributions to some kind of scheme. It's not based on a, a reasonable public finance system that would include VAT or something like this. Paul Chan, you know, if he if they're looking at him for a candidate, I think they would need to um, understand very clearly his views on some of these public finance issues, because these go to the very heart of the, the, the fact that our public health system is not sustainable. That, that is because we're over-dependent on capital revenue uh, rather than recurrent revenue, whereas the the building out the capacity for public health, hospitals and clinics and so on depends on needs, recurrent resources. Exactly. And so we, we, our revenue comes too much from land and not in this and too little from other sources. So um, if you look at, the, at Singapore, for example, they have, they have, done a very, very good job, but of course they started at a different place than we did, um, at building up their public health capacity. We need to do this too, but it is on a, uh, a foundation of an appropriate modern public finance system with a revenue system that is more reliable than our land revenue system. Okay, looking at the uh, chief executive election, which has now been put back to uh, May the 8th, I think. Um, uh, so do you expect it to be uh, much different this time around? I mean, there's an enlarged election committee. Uh, uh, each candidate will need uh, 188 nominations uh, from uh, different sectors, each of the five sectors. And there's the new, the new sector, of course, with uh, representatives from national organisations. Um, um, do you think the, 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 the pr procedure, the nature, the character of the election will be different from in the past? Yes and no. Yes, it, um, it will be different in the sense that I think there will be less emphasis on campaigning and engaging the public. So I think the, the party sees uh, risk if there's campaigning. Remember what happened to C.Y. Long and Henry Tang. This was sort of upended what the, what the uh, central government wished to see. And it doesn't trust the people of Hong Kong to do the right thing anyway. And that's why we have this kind of uh, small circle way of choosing our 
chief executive. And this is especially ironic because Carrie Lamb stood up and told us that, well, even if we postponed the election, there would still be time for campaigning and engaging the public. She seems to think that that's important, but I don't think the authorities in the central government do. Um, but it will continue to be much the same in the sense that the central government and the Communist Party will have a strong hand in it. They now have new uh, ways to influence the outcome through the vetting process. But the same old criteria that they have used before, um, patriotism, it's newly restated, but it's an old criteria, will continue to be there. But, but now I think there is this renewed interest in capacity, right. in competence. That, wow, if you cannot demonstrate capacity or competence, along with your loyalty, right. I mean, so the you're out. The first fence is patriotism, loyalty, that, but that's just the first fence. There's going to, definitely going to be a second fence of, of ability. I believe so. Necessary and sufficient conditions. So the right. pandemic has put a spotlight on this, and we in Hong Kong should be grateful for this. I mean, this is a, some kind of silver lining as we're sitting in our own impose self-isolation, you know, um, is, that we, is that this is an important criteria. Two, and Xi, Xi Jinping showed a bright light on it. Right. Two viable candidates or one viable candidate and, and one uh, joker? Actually, Mike, it doesn't matter because as with all, all these things, the party will simply say, this is who we selected. Vote for this one, and that one, and that person will be chosen. End of story. Uh, it was interesting uh, earlier. You mentioned C. Uh, y. Leung, the former chief executive. Uh, I know um, you know his name has been uh, mentioned at all. But do you do you seriously think uh, that he could well be a candidate this time around? Yes, I do. Um, certainly. Uh, he is uh, very high profile. He, along with many others, have been very critical, but, you know, leading the criticism of the current regime. If the, if the party wants to change horses, then that is always a possibility. But, but as you imply, CY comes with a lot of baggage, and the baggage includes an extremely divisive of office, which, if the party cares about rebuilding trust and legitimacy, and it could do this if it handles the pandemic well, then he will simply remind us of where we've been before. But, but CY would say that he did uh, achieve a lot during his term. Yes, and the people, <laughs> and people would dispute that. So, you know, I mean, there's there's um, on issues that ma look at the housing mess where we are. If if he had solved the housing crisis, then we wouldn't be in this part of uh, these deep rooted problems that have not been addressed. Mm. So I would say um, none of the previous CEs can can you know uh, claim outstanding accomplishments they've all been disasters in one way or another 
And uh, yeah, the housing problem is a, a, a long-term issue, obviously. But th thank you very much for speaking to us uh, on the programme this morning. That was uh, John Burns, uh, uh, Professor at the Department of Politics and Public Administration at the University of uh, Hong Kong. Uh, thank you, Professor Burns. And now it's time for the Olympics. <laughs> And we're joined by our sports reporter, Atom Chung. Good morning to you, Atom. Good morning. Thanks, uh, thanks for coming down to the studio. Uh, so uh, we had the closing ceremony of the Beijing Winter Olympics uh, last night. I guess you could say uh, it's been a very successful event for China, not only in staging the event and how everything went, but, but in, in terms of China's own performance, nine gold medals which is a record, I think, and third in the medals table. What's your overall assessment? Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you look at uh, the sporting performances, uh, definitely a success. Like you said, they are third in the final medals table. They've got nine goals. That's a record for China. That's four better than their previous best. Uh, they had five in Vancouver in 2010. So this is a big leap. So, uh, yeah, successful for China uh, in that sense. They did get uh, 15 medals in total. So, yeah, think about it, nine. Uh, more than half of their total medals are golds. So, so that's good news for China. Um, looking at uh, the rest of the table, though, Norway uh, ran away with this. They got 16 goals to uh, lead all countries for the third straight <laughs> Olympics. seems to be Norway. <laughs> yeah, and they, they also topped the table in uh, total medals with 37. Uh, Germany had 12, so they're second. Interesting thing for China, though, they got nine goals, as we mentioned. Uh, one more than the United States mm. and Sweden mm. and Netherlands. Mm. I think presidency will be hosting a glass of celebration <laughs> after last night, uh, especially uh, on that one. I, I, I thought it was uh, very... Not, we think of Chinese athletes as being very, very hardworking and, and super fit. But one of the things that came through to me this time was the creativity and the artistry in the skating. Yeah. It, and uh, it was an extra dimension to the Chinese performance. Yeah, for sure. Uh, with the figure skating, uh, you're talking about the uh, gold medal winning performance by uh, this pair from Harbin, uh, Han Chong and Sui Wing Jing. Uh, they won gold in the pair's figure skating. Um, I, I kind of saw this coming, and, and I think that they looked beautiful on ice. They were silver medalists in the last Olympics, and they carried out their routine this time very gracefully and uh, also uh, managed to break a world record in points in the process. They actually narrowly uh, beat the Russian pair. It was stunning, 0.62 or something, exactly. tiny margins. Yeah, so, yeah. so it's good for them because uh, four years ago they did lose to another Russian pair, so it's good to see this time China topping the podium with uh, two Russian pairs finishing second and third. And a look at the uh, the gold medals uh, on the final day. Uh, a win for Finland in the in the hockey. Yeah, shout out to Finland, their first ever men's hockey Olympic title, uh, despite reaching the podium in four of the last five Olympics. I had to look this up. I'm surprised that Finland has never won a hockey title in the Olympics. So good for them. Uh, they of course uh, led by former NHL star Vil uh, Valtteri Vilppula, and uh, dethroning the Russians in the gold medal game winning 2-1 and finally a, a, a medal for 
for Great Britain too, in fact. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and we should mention this. I mean, uh, Britain sent a very small team to Beijing this time. They had only 50 athletes. So uh, they did win gold on the final day of the Games, courtesy of the women's curling team, led by skipper Eve Muirhead, uh, as they uh, defeated Japan 10-3. They actually had a chance at double gold, but the men's team lost uh, to Sweden a day earlier and had to settle for silver. I watched that. In, uh, <laughs> amazingly, which is not my sport, but it was intriguing. It was it was down to the last end. They went into extra, yeah, think, an extra end. They lost just five four. Yeah, it was. Uh, well, the Swedes didn't roll their last one because the the British ones were all outside the circle. So, but it was it was tight, really, really tight. Yeah, it's tight. It's an exciting watch, but I've heard some people say it's therapeutic. To watch the, the rocks collide <laughs> and see how close you get to the center. Yeah. It makes they make a sort of satisfying clunk. As well, 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 the last, the last, it was the last one on the on the tenth that evened it up. In fact, because the British had to knock out the Swedes out of the circle in order to tie the game up. Exactly, exactly. Force so, it into extra extra mm, pushing. Mm, mm. <laughs> and uh, the Germany dominant in the bobsled. Yes, uh, so uh, they call him the uh, the bobsled king. He is Francesco Friedrich. Uh, he won the um, he led the uh, German team to victory in the four men bobsled, and he's the first athlete to win both the four men bobsled and the two men event twice. So uh, it's it's funny because. Uh, we mentioned how Germany finished second in the medals table. Actually, they've won nine of the 10 sliding events. And so, yeah, nine out of their, their 12 goals came from either the bobsled, the luge, or the skeleton. He must be fearless, this guy. <laughs> that small vehicle going down yeah. Yeah. on hell of a speed. Exactly, in that speed and with uh, you know, the rest of your team behind you. And a very nice uh, closing ceremony. And uh, I enjoyed the rendition of Old Lang Syne as well. Yeah, yeah, and also uh, passing the flag to uh, the next uh, hosts, uh, yeah. Italy. Mila in, uh, Mila Milano. And, yeah, they uh, call it Cortina, yeah. 2026 Milano Cortina. Mm. So uh, it, it's interesting. The game's going back to Italy for the first time since Turin, 2006. Because right. yeah. technically it's cities, isn't it? Yeah. Rather than countries. But, exactly. But it's the national anthem that gets played. So. Yeah, yeah, and this time they have it in two cities. So it's Milan and Cortina. And apparently Cortina has hosted the Winter Olympics before in the 50s. Mm. That's and, right. And of course, let, let's not forget the Winter Paralympics because they begin on March the 3rd. Right? Yeah, I want to talk about that too. So the Winter Paralympics start on the 4th of March. Uh, China will have athletes uh, there for sure. Uh, there are uh, not as many sports, though. Uh, than the main Olympics. So uh, you'll see sports like alpine skiing, uh, Nordic skiing, which inc includes cross-country, uh, snowboarding, uh, para-ice hockey, and also more curling, uh, only this time on the wheelchair. So, uh, Atom, yeah, what's next for Hong Kong's and, uh, and China's athletes then uh, in, in terms of winter sports? Or? Yeah, 